welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Ina Coriel, and Philippe de Lamatroc. We're all fan fiction writers, not um, or so multiple personalities. <laughs> They're just my pen names. I've been Gabrielle of late because I'm reading another of her novel-length stories, Ospientium. Now, in my last post, I uh, talked about my respect for history, and I told you you could find the bibliography of Ospientium at the end of chapter 17 if you wanted to go looking. Actually, I went looking, and it is at the end of chapter 17 on my website, gabrielle.sites.net, with a Y, remember S-Y-T-E-S. It's after chapter 17 on fanfiction.net and archive of our own. It's labeled Bibliography and Appendix. So yes, it is tied into the appendix with all the translations, which I would prefer you didn't read until after the story is finished. Also, I was editing chapter 6 as I was recording it, and I listened back to parts of it and found I spoke and read rather fast. Now, I'm normally a very fast talker, and I have made some effort to slow it down. Perhaps the recording is speeding it up Or it could just be that I'm getting excited. When I read my own stories so many years after they were written, I read more like a reader than a writer. I I get just as excited as a reader might. Either way, I'm going to endeavor to slow it down some more. But as you've already surmised, I'm still speaking fast right now. So I've really got to make a conscious effort at it. I'll do my best. Let's get started. Star Trek Deep Space Nine Ospianchim by Gabrielle Lawson, Chapter 7. Sisko stifled the yawn he felt and watched the viewscreen. The Pacific Ocean was below them, but they were nearing the Chinese coast, Manchuria, if he remembered his geography. True to her word, Kira had her team searching the oceans. No one had turned up in the Pacific, not even on the various island groups they had passed over. Three more Bashir, Amitai, and of Ephraim. O'Brien to Sisko. It had been very quiet on the bridge, and Sisko almost jumped when the comm signal came through. What is it, Chief? Sisko asked. Good news, I hope. Yes, it is, sir. The Irishman's voice had an even more distinctive lilt to it. Sisko decided it was, wasn't just because he was well-rested. We've got a transporter. Sisko sat straight up in the chair, all fatigue having left him the transporter. They could bring their people home now, for better or for worse. Good work, Chief. Well, I can't, I really can't take the credit, sir. I just woke up after all. Well, then you've got a good team working for you, Sisko said. He felt happier that the transporter was fixed, but he sobered when he realized where they were. Southeast Asia. The closest signals would be those in Nepal. K2 probably frozen to death. They would be beaming up corpses. Still, he kept his voice even when he ordered, Helm, bring us to within transporter range of Nepal, thrusters at maximum speed. Of course, it would still be dark over Nepal, but hovering in the night sky over Nepal wouldn't be as risky as hovering over Europe or America. Few people would be able to spot the dimly lit ship. Aye, sir, laying in a course. ETA? Six minutes. Chief, Sisko said, hoping that O'Brien was still on the line. Meet me in the transporter room in five minutes. Have a medical team stand by as well. 
Aye, sir. Should we wake the major, sir? Cisco thought for a moment. It had been Kira's task to find the missing crew members. She would want to be there. But she also needed the rest. They all did. No, let her sleep. Have Commander Dax join us, though. Aye, sir. The comm line went dead. Cisco stood to stretch his legs. Lieutenant, he said, addressing the crewman sitting in Kira's seat. You have the bridge. Inform me of our arrival over Nepal. Aye, sir. He arrived at the transporter room in less than five minutes, but it didn't matter. O'Brien and Dax were already there. One would not have guessed from the appearance of the room that the transporter was at all functioning. Panels were open and circuits exposed, but the pad looked fine, if a little dirty. The controls were lit and apparently in working order. O'Brien appeared a bit self-conscious and seemed to know what Sisko was thinking. We should have her cleaned up in a few hours, Captain, but I thought you would want to use it as soon as it was operational. You thought right, Chief. They've been gone too long already. Bridge to Captain Sisko. Sisko here. Entering transporter range, sir. Thank you. Sisko out. Sisko looked to O'Brien, who moved silently to the command console. He checked the readings and then nodded. Who is it? Dax asked. Smith, O'Brien replied. I've got a lock. Just then the door opened and the medical team filed in with two stretchers. Sisko turned away from them to watch the pad. It was time. Energize. He felt his pulse begin to quicken and realized he was getting his hopes up. There was a chance, given it was an infinitesimal one, that Smith could have survived, somehow. Dax was watching, too. She felt the same way. Suddenly, a shimmering form coalesced on the pad. It was only a meter or so tall, not full height, but then Sisko hadn't expected Smith to be standing. Slowly, the form began to take the shape of a human sitting with legs tucked up close toward the chest, two arms wrapped around the knees, and then there was a face and the shimmering faded away. His hands didn't quite seem real, shrunken and blackened as they were from frostbite. His face was discolored as well. His eyes, still open, stared blindly back at Sisko and Dax. Crewman Tristan Smith, frozen solid. It was obvious the man was dead, but the nurse moved forward with a tricorder anyway. Just doing her job, Sisko told himself. It was going to be awkward getting him back to sickbay on a stretcher. Chief, can we beam him to sickbay? The chief didn't answer right away. He was still staring at the crewman on the platform. He shivered visibly and then seemed to wake up. No, sir. Sorry. But we've really only got limited use. Intraship beaming is a trickier thing. Sisko rubbed his eyes. Then he looked to the nurse. She put her tricorder away without saying anything. Sisko turned away, not wanting to watch as she and the others put the man on one of the stretchers. He heard the door open and close, and they were gone. The nurse was still there with one of the med techs, their faces ashen as they waited for the second crewman to be transported. Do we have a lock on Sira? Yes, sir, O'Brien answered, his voice very much sobered now. Sisko studied the faces of those in the room. He was sure their expressions only mirrored his own. Energize. The second form appeared on the platform much as the first had, only this time Sira was not sitting. She had apparently fallen and was more or less in a lying position. She, too, was dead, frozen to death days before. 
The nurse again checked the tricorder, and then she and the med tech lifted the stiff form onto the stretcher. The door opened and closed again, leaving only Dax and the chief in the room with the captain. None of them wanted to speak. I believe we'll have better luck in the Serengeti, Sisko said quietly. Tell the bridge to set course. Wu is waiting. And Nietzsche? Dax asked. Sisko didn't answer. I told you. Bashir gasped through clenched teeth. I was a tennis player. He didn't look at the men anymore, any of them. Instead, he stared at the ends of his outstretched and shaking fingers. Each one was bloody from where his fingernails had been ripped out. Ironically, it was the sitting man, who was no longer sitting, who had done it. He had been the good cop. Apparently, he also liked inflicting pain on others. And it was an incredible amount of pain, too, considering the amount of nerve endings in the finger. It didn't help that the sitting man had taken his time, shoving the blade underneath each of his fingernails and slowly tearing them loose one by one. Bashir had clenched his teeth so hard to keep from screaming that he thought his jaw would break. Poland was conquered nearly four years ago. Why would a tennis player come here? The pacing man asked, still walking in circles around Bashir. It was making him dizzy. Sticking to Garrick's sage advice, Bashir told the truth. I got stuck here. How did you come here? Professional tennis players travel, he told him. I've been many places. Paris, Budapest, Johannesburg, San Francisco. Why would you come to Poland in the middle of a war? Bad timing, Julian whispered. Of course, he knew he shouldn't have said it, but he didn't know what else to say. He could not tell them the real truth. That would get him killed, either for getting smart with his captors or for being a lunatic. The pacing man lost his patience. He grabbed the back of Bashir's head by the hair and yanked it back until Bashir could almost see the wall behind him. Who are you working with? He asked again. He had probably asked that question 15 times already. I'm not working with anyone, Julian answered with effort. I am not a spy. The third man, the changeling, stood up from his chair, this time the chair itself remained, and walked over to stand in front of Bashir. Tennis players, he said, stressing each heavily accented word, need their hands, don't they? The pacing man released Bashir's hair, and Julian looked up at the changeling, meeting his gaze. He forgot about the pain in his fingers, and even his shoulder. All that was only temporary. The changeling had something else in mind. Doctors needed their hands, too. Tell me, are you right or left-handed? Now would be a good time to begin lying, Garrick's voice sounded inside Julian's mind, but he found his mouth was dry and he couldn't answer. Right or left, the changeling repeated. The sitting man, the torturer, stepped forward, his white lab coat specked with drops of red. This time, he was holding a hammer in his hands. Bashir looked away, back to his hands. He needed his hands, both of them. He couldn't be a surgeon without his hands. The arms of the chair were so flat, his hands would be crushed. 
If you don't answer, I will choose for you. Bashir swallowed and tried to think. If he said right, would they break it, or would they think he was lying and break the other? Then he looked up again, right into the changeling's gleaming eyes. She was enjoying this. She, or he, cocked his head slightly with just the hint of a smile. Lynx, he said. Bashir was frozen. He could do little more than shake his head and ball his hand into a fist. But he was weak from hunger and from the recent torment, and the sitting man did not seem to have a problem with flattening his hand against the arm of the chair. This time, clenching his teeth didn't help, and Bashir's screams woke some of the prisoners in the cellar below. Eventually, they tuned it out and went back to sleep. It was nothing they hadn't heard before. Captain Sisko pushed away the fatigue he felt. He was not going to miss a transport, even if it meant missing another hour of sleep. Kira, beside him, felt the same way. She'd already expressed her displeasure at not being woken up for the first transports. "'Ready to transport, sir,' O'Brien reported. "'He won't be seen,' Sisko asked as he rubbed his eyes with one hand. "'It was nearly dawn in the Maasai village. The villagers would be rising soon. "'No, sir, he's clear.' Energize. Sisko watched the form appear on the platform. Though he knew that Wu had been taken in by the Maasai, he still was not prepared for the crewman's appearance. It should not have been surprising that he was out of uniform, but the traditional Maasai dress was still unexpected. Even more so was the orange clay that covered the lieutenant from head to toe. As Wu stepped barefoot out of the platform, Sisko held out his hand. "'Welcome back, lieutenant,' he said." Wu had to shift the staff he was carrying into his left hand in order to shake the captain's proffered hand. "'Good to be back, Captain,' he replied with a grin. He shook Kira's hand as well. "'Are you all right?' Sisko asked. "'Fine, sir,' Wu answered, though he now looked a little nervous. "'Just a bit homesick, I guess. It'll be nice to get back in uniform.' "'I got a lock on Nietzsche,' O'Brien interrupted." Sisko, realizing he'd been smiling, stopped and turned back to the chief. No chance of him being seen? Sensors aren't very accurate, but I'm not picking up any other readings. Sisko nodded and turned to Wu. Report to sickbay. Let Nurse Baines check you out. If she says you're okay, you can return to your quarters. Wu seemed to be paying more attention to the chief and the transporter platform than to his captain, though. He apparently... "'but apparently he had been listening. "'I'd rather stay, sir.' "'Sisko wasn't sure if he should allow it. "'He had his doubts about Nietzsche, "'but he finally nodded his approval. "'O'Brien caught the nod as well "'and began the next transport. "'This time, no human form appeared on the platform. "'Instead, the sparkling lights of the transporter effect "'only deposited a small scattering of white bones and torn fabric.' Nietzsche's comm badge lay near a few of the rib bones, still in, some still in position, its surface smudged with dark, dried blood. Nietzsche's skull stared blankly up toward the ceiling. The nurse hesitated a moment before visibly steeling herself to move forward with his tricorder. "'I'm picking up residual traces of mammalian DNA, Captain. Feline. Lion, perhaps.' That would explain the skeleton, Sisko thought, feeling the fatigue rush over him again. Hell of a way for a Starfleet officer to go, eaten by lions before mankind ever left the atmosphere. 
Kira's expression never wavered, but she turned away. I, um, Wu began, obviously quite uncomfortable. Guess I should go to sickbay now. Permission to leave, Captain? Sisko could not take his eyes off the skeleton before him. Granted. Julian Bashir couldn't really see anymore. His tormentors, the room, the world swam around him in a blur of pain. But he could hear. Both of the Germans had left when the door opened. They were talking now with the changeling. He couldn't understand them. They were not speaking English. None of them sounded happy, but Bashir didn't care about that. They were not touching him. That was all that mattered. He let his head fall back against the chair, closed his eyes, and tried to slow his breathing. But it was only a momentary respite. The unhappy speaking stopped and the Germans returned to him. Bashir opened his eyes, expecting to see them preparing some new torture for him. Instead, the pacing man was untying his hands. A white form hovered near the floor. The other German was untying his ankles. They were releasing him. The changeling stood in front of him. When he spoke, he did so slowly, as if knowing that Bashir would have a hard time listening. The Gestapo has decided, he said, still using a German accent, that you are not worth our time. Bring ihn nach unten. The last part was lost on Bashir, but the Germans understood. The sitting man in his red speckled lab coat grabbed Bashir's right arm and began to pull him to his feet. The other man stepped toward his other side. Somewhere in his mind, Julian remembered his shoulder. He did not want to have to put it back in place again. He did his best to stand on his own. The room spun faster around him, but he managed to remain upright. The sitting man did not release his arm, but began to lead him, not gently, towards the door. The steps were harder to negotiate now, and he nearly fell several times before reaching the bottom. But the sitting man's grip was firm, and they both made it to the floor on their feet. It was becoming easier to focus, and Bashir thought that he was being returned to his cell. As bad as it had been, with its darkness and lack of air, he yearned for the solitude, the quiet, and even the darkness. He also thought he could remember the way, and so was confused when they passed a familiar doorway. The sitting man kept leading him down the hallway. Against one wall sat an odd-looking, waist-high wooden table. When they reached it, the sitting man pushed Bashir harshly over the top of it. The other German stepped up and pulled Bashir's wrists out toward the other end of the table so that he couldn't straighten back up. Darkness threatened to overcome the bright overhead lighting as the man grasped his left wrist and pulled against his left shoulder. Bashir involuntarily cried out as the pain erupted anew in his injured arm. We are going to teach you, the changeling said behind him, how to count in German. Bashir couldn't work out what he meant. Count? Eins. Bashir heard the crack just before he felt it, but only a heartbeat before. Searing, stinging pain forced a ragged cry from his already parched throat. His knees buckled and he sagged against the table. Eins, the changeling said again, this time more forcefully. Another crack, and then another bolt of pain sliced through Bashir's back. It is always eins until you repeat eins. Another crack, but Bashir was beginning to understand. Eins, he choked. He only had time to gasp for a breath before the changeling spoke again. Zwei, 
the crack of the whip followed and Bashir learned to count in German. He passed out bef before he had reached 15 or Fünfzehn, but they dashed his face with water and made him start again from 10, saying, by the time he reached Swansig, 20, he could no longer scream. The number came out in a whisper. The whip ceased its assault, though by then Bashir's back was crisscrossed with ribbons of red, bleeding welts. Lastin, the changeling vo changeling's voice sounded so distant. Irkungayan. The changeling waited for the others to leave and then walked over to Bashir's limp form. She could have killed him. She realized that. All she had to do was order it. She almost had. She knelt down in a fluid moment and untied his hands. She was satisfied, for now. Bashir tried to look it up at her, but he was unable to raise his head. No matter. She gripped him firmly around the waist and lifted him from the floor. For his part, he did attempt to walk, but he couldn't keep his feet beneath him very well. The door to his cell was open, and she dropped him inside. He rolled onto his stomach, carefully leaving his left hand exposed beside him, and lay still. I'll have a doctor come look at you this afternoon, she said in the voice of the Gestapo man whose form she held. Then she closed and locked the door. She had to get to Birkenau. Scharfer Heiler was due to report for duty in an hour. Jadzia Dax checked the readings on her console again and wished she could increase speed. It was nearly time to end her shift, but they were still nearly two hours from reaching Greenland and the next set of comm signals. On the bottom edge of the view screen, she could just make out the coast of Norway. Or was it Sweden? It was difficult remembering. Historical geography was hardly her main focus at the academy. She could remember stuff like that about her own world, but Earth was different. She had visited too many planets, lived in too many cultures to remember every detail about them all. Commander! Dax turned to see who had called, even though she knew the call was for Worf. He had the bridge, after all. What is it, Ensign? There was impatience in Worf's voice. He probably was not too pleased with the outburst, but he did nothing more to show it. I'm picking up two more signals, sir. The red-haired ensign reported excitedly, though he had made an effort to keep his voice low. It's Amitai and Ephraim. Worf stood and walked to the man's console. Where? he asked more quietly, still all annoyance gone. Here, sir. The man pointed to his screen, but Dax couldn't see anything from her seat at the helm. For his part, Worf stood ramrod stiff and showed no emotion, nothing to give her any, any indication of good news or bad. Hail them, Worf ordered. The man's voice dropped to a whisper when he answered, and Dax couldn't make it out. She turned back to her console, knowing that she should be minding her duty, but she still strained to hear. Dax, Worf said, so suddenly she nearly jumped. She nodded to Lieutenant Jordan, who would relieve her at the helm, and met Worf near the console. She could see then the coordinates of the signals. One was stationary and weak, but oddly, the second was moving. Set course and then go below and wake the captain. Tell Chief O'Brien to prepare for transport. Dax nodded. She returned to the helm and reached over Jordan's shoulder to set the new course. He did not object. Then she returned to the turbo lift. Moving. What could it mean? Could one of them be swimming? Sisko looked so tired when he answered the door chime that Dax almost felt sorry for waking him. 
He'd only been asleep for a couple of hours. We've found Ephraim and Amitai, Benjamin. She took a deep breath and then told him the rest. They're in the water, and they don't answer our hails. Dax had thought it impossible, but Sisko's face actually fell. Where are we, old man? Off the northern coast of Norway or Sweden. He pounded his fist on the doorframe and then turned back to his quarters. Inform Major Kira and get the medical team ready to meet me in the transporter room, Dax. Dax nodded and left him to get dressed. She didn't tell him that the scans had shown the water temperature to be well below tolerable levels for a human. He was much better at Earth geography than she was. He probably already knew. The transporter was crowded with people when they entered, though she noticed that it was much cleaner now. Sisko looked grim, but he kept his tone neutral. Do we have a lock, Chief? Yes, sir, O'Brien acknowledged. It's Ephraim, but it's weak. If we're going to do it, we need to do it now. Sisko nodded, and the transporter started up with a slight whine. Still needed work. It was understandable given the amount of damage the changeling had caused. It probably wouldn't be back to specs until it had been completely overhauled at the nearest space dock, which was a couple hundred years away at present. The form that emerged on the platform was much too small to be Ephraim, and much too flat. There was only a black, wet pile of fabric. Kira stepped forward first. She turned back a few of the folds, revealing a swatch of yellow, and found Ephraim's comm badge. She handed it to Sisko, then flexed her fingers. The nurse took over and scanned the fabric for human remains. She didn't say anything. The uniform dripped when she picked it up. She too flexed her fingers as she dropped the fabric into the waiting container. I've got Amitai now, sir, O'Brien said quietly. Sisko waited for the text to clear the pad. Energize. This time, the form that emerged from the transporter effect was indeed large enough to be human. Larger, in fact. Several large chunks of ice had been beamed up with Amitai's body. He'd apparently crawled onto a floating slab of ice. That would have explained the movement. Sisko sighed. How long to Green Greenland, old man? Another hour and a half, Dax answered as she watched the medtechs extricate the corpse from the ice. Sisko heard the footsteps in the hall before he heard the door chime. He'd very diligently kept his eyes closed since he had returned to his quarters, but it was no use. He hadn't slept at all. He knew that he should. He would be on duty in less than three hours, and he wouldn't have another chance to sleep for sixteen hours after that. But telling himself that over and over hadn't helped either. It had only made him feel worse. He'd had a stomachache since Nepal. Smith and Sira frozen, Nietzsche torn apart by lions, Ephraim and Amitai, all of them dead, Fellini too. There were still six others who were not answering their comm signals, and Bashir. They hadn't been able to find Bashir yet. He thought about altering course. Pick up the survivors first. They were waiting, most likely injured, in hostile surroundings. But he knew he couldn't do that. The ship would not go any faster than it was going right now. Anyway, not until the engines were fully repaired. And what if, by some chance, his stomach ache was wrong? What if even one of them was still alive, but unable to answer? When the door chimed, Sisko stood quickly, still dressed, and met Kira at the door. Any answer from the Major? She let her glance fall to the floor. No, sir. No life signs either. But the sensors... Sisko stopped her. I know. 
They didn't say anything else as they headed toward the transporter room. Just coming into range, Captain, O'Brien reported as the door slid open. The medical team was already there, waiting. Energize as soon as you have a lock, Chief, Sisko ordered quietly. The result was no different than it had been over Nepal. Two crew members frozen to death. They were beamed up together this time. They had obviously held each other for warmth, but time had been against them. They might have even lasted an hour, perhaps, but it had taken more than a week before the Defiant was capable of rescuing them. They couldn't have survived. Shavat and Pelt, seven out of eight. Sisko looked to Kira. What's our flight plan, Major? That depends, she replied as she walked around the med techs to reach the computer screen. She pressed a few controls, and a map of the Western Hemisphere appeared. We've got people on both continents and just off the coast. If we go for Notsu now, which would be a shorter trip, we'd risk by night by going back for Salerno and the others. We'd have to wait until we came around again. Sisko nodded. He didn't think Salerno would appreciate that. No, I don't think he would. She pressed another key and a line formed on the map, showing the Defiant's path to South America and the Galapagos. We could go the, to the southern continent first, and we could swing north afterwards. But Notsu is injured, Sisko finished for her. She nodded. He thought about it silently for a few moments. Notsu had been patient thus far, despite her injury and the inclement weather. She would only be waiting a few more hours. Salerno would be waiting a whole day if they went for Canada first, and there were three others in the Atacama to think of as well. In spite of his stomach ache, he could not completely discount the possibility of their survival. South first, Major. Kira nodded curtly and called the bridge with a new course. We should, be, we should reach the western coast within five hours, she informed him. Sisko nodded and then left for his quarters. He still had a couple of hours to lay with his eyes closed. His stomach ache showed no signs of fading. Five hours. It was going to be a long day. Two hours later, Sisko was back on the bridge and the Defiant was passing over Nova Scotia. The crew was quiet, most by now having gotten the word that the crewmates they had been rescued that had been rescued had not survived, with the exception, of course, of Wu, who, true to his word, was in fine shape. After a night's rest, he added his name to the duty roster and his hands to the repairs. Atacama proved something of a surprise. As Sisko had suspected, all three crew members arrived on the ship as lifeless carcasses. That they'd been dead a while was evidenced by the degree to which they had been scavenged. Even the medical team, who was supposed to be able to handle some pretty nasty wounds, were left queasy from the site. But remembering the blood in the transporter room, Sisko ordered an autopsy on Keller anyway. Without the doctor, there was no one really qualified to provide an autopsy, but Nurse Bain solemnly volunteered to autopsy all three, to the best of her ability. Sisko assured her that any information she might discover would be helpful. And it was, at least in answering some questions. Keller, indeed, had not died from the desert. A small incision was found in his chest— he had been stabbed through the heart. The changeling had killed him in order to gain control of the transporter. Veland was too far gone to provide any real answers, but Armand was more helpful. Her neck had been snapped. The changeling had killed her too to gain control of engineering. 
Since Velin had been in engineering as well, it was safe, a safe assumption that all three crewmen had been killed before they ever left the ship. The Galapagos were not far away, so once again, Sisko found himself in the transporter room, backed up by Kira and the medical team. Salerno was contacted. He'd been doing better the last couple of days, catching some small lizards to eat and finding some plants, but he was anxious to return to the ship. This time, Sisko didn't have to disappoint him. Energize. Aye, sir, O'Brien replied, and then turned back to the controls. In a few seconds, Salerno's form began to materialize on the platform. He looked pale and swayed slightly when the effect left him, and Sisko realized he must be weak from his ordeal. He stepped forward to offer a steadying hand. "'It's good to see you again, Captain,' Salerno's, Salerno said, grinning as he took hold of Sisko's arm. "'Good to have you back, Ensign,' Sisko smiled in return. "'You didn't happen to see Lieutenant Sopak since we last spoke?' "'No, sir.' Sisko waited until he had been led out of the room. Any readings on Sopak? I am getting another signal, Captain, O'Brien said, though he didn't seem too sure. But it's weak. Can you get a lock? Kira asked. Yes, I think so. Both he and Kira looked to the captain, waiting for his signal. Sisko nodded and turned again to face the platform. He prepared himself inwardly as well as he could for Sopak's body to materialize. A shimmering form appeared, lying horizontal on the pad, but it was too big, much too big. As it took shape, it began to be apparent that they hadn't beamed up Sopak after all, but it was over before anyone was able to react. As the shimmering faded, fins became visible and large, white teeth. As the transporter effect drained away, the shark came back to life, thrashing wildly on the platform. Kira, who had been standing closest to the pad, jumped back fearfully. Sisko didn't blame her. He grabbed her arm and pulled her away from the pad as he stepped back himself. "'Send it back, Chief!' he yelled. "'I'm trying, sir!' O'Brien yelled back. "'We hadn't planned on sending anything back down!' The shark, probably a good three and a half meters in length, was whipping about so violently that it was in danger of slipping off the pad altogether. Sisko pulled out his phaser. Kira took his lead and unholstered hers as well. "'Set to stun, Major!' "'What is?' is that thing she asked as she took aim i thought earth was paradise you never told me you had sea monsters cisco fired with her and held the beam until the shark lay still well nearly still it still gasped for air that it couldn't breathe cisco let out his breath he turned to the nurse scan it then he turned back to kira as the nurse pulled out his tricorder and stepped cautiously toward the shark it's not a sea monster it's a shark and that's a relatively small one. I'm definitely reading the comm signal, Captain, the nurse called. He looked up, his face grim. And I'm reading Vulcan genetic material. Got it, sir, O'Brien declared triumphantly. The nurse stepped away. Sisko hesitated before he asked the next question. He was afraid of the answer. What about human remains? Kira looked at him hard. She knew what he was asking. Bashir was the only one not accounted for now, with the exception of the changeling. The nurse checked her tricorder again, then shook his, his head. No, sir, no human remains. Sisko sighed again, relieved. If Bashir was ju still just missing, there was still grounds for hope. Unfortunately, that was not the case for Lieutenant Sopak. Send it back, Chief, before it suffocates.
Max carefully removed the wooden shoes from his feet. His toes and heels were red and sore. The shoes were too small. They cut into his feet, but he didn't, did not dare go without them. He'd already seen some of the other prisoners with frostbite. As painful as the shoes were, he would rather wear them than stand barefoot in the cold and mud during roll call, especially given how long the roll calls were lasting. Though he had only been in the camp a few days, maybe a week, he'd already lost track. He could tell that something had gone wrong. The count wasn't right. The numbers weren't adding up. So the Germans kept counting and the prisoners kept dying as they did so. Do you think he's dead? Vladi asked from behind his hands. He was always blowing into his hands to try and keep them warm. Max put his shoes back on, then looked at the boy. The doctor? I don't know. And really, he didn't. But he didn't want Vladya to think the worst anyway, not until they knew for sure. Things were bad enough already. They took him because he was English. Maybe they took him to a camp for prisoners of war. They probably had him shot, someone said from below. He was speaking Yiddish. Vladya leaned over the edge to see who had spoken. Max did it as well. I heard the guards say he was a spy. A Nazi spy, more likely, someone else added angrily, this time from across the room. Why do you think he still had his hair when the rest of us were shaved? He can't even speak German, Vladya countered. How can he be a spy for them? Why would the Nazis want to spy on us? The first agreed. They already have us. Maybe they just consider English Jews better than Slavic Jews, a third suggested. Soon the whole front end of the barracks was arguing over whether or not Bashir was being treated with privileged or hanged with piano wire. Max didn't know the answer. He only knew that Bashir had been kind to him for the three days they were together, and he was protective of Ladya. He was quiet and rarely spoke. When he did, it was in English, and appeared to me more for his own comfort than any real communication. When he really wanted to say something, he used his hands, gesturing to convey his meaning. Though they'd only met on the train, Vladya seemed generally worried about him. When the argument erupted, he had backed up quietly to lean against the wall. Eventually, the Block Testa decided that there was too much noise and threatened to beat the next one who spoke. Max joined Vladya at the wall, and they sat in silence. Vladya, no doubt, was thinking of Bashir, or perhaps his cousin. Max thought of his wife and daughter. Every thought, every memory brought their faces back into sight. He tried to tell himself that at least they'd been spared the torture of starvation and cold that threatened him every hour of every day. But it did not make it hurt any less. By 2000 hours, Fellini and Notsu were back on board the Defiant, Notsu in sickbay with Salerno, and Fellini in a damaged shuttle bay that was serving as a temporary morgue. Still unable to speak, Notsu had written up a brief report. She and Fellini had been in the turbolift on their way to engineering when the transporter took them. As they materialized, they were quite shocked to see that there was nothing beneath their feet. Judging from her rate of fall, Notsu estimated that they had materialized over 3,000 feet in the air. Sisko wasn't sure how she survived, but he'd heard stories when he was younger of people who had been skydiving and had fallen thousands of feet only to bounce. Some were injured, some had gotten up and walked away. Fellini had not been so lucky. His neck had broken on impact, along with most of his other bones. Notsu had stayed with him, trying to ward off the scavengers, but she was wounded herself. Fellini was in poor shape when he materialized on the transporter pad. 
Sisko let the hand that held Notsu's report drop to his side as he surveyed the shuttle bay. Eleven shiny black casings held them, some with bodies, some with scraps of uniform. There was nothing for Sopak. He was the twelfth. Twelve was too many, but at least they'd been found, most of them. He sighed. Fifteen comm signals and fifteen crew members. He felt relieved that at least a portion of at least a portion of his anxiety, but the stomach ache had grown worse. There was some half-hearted grumbling on the ship, rumors that some of the crew wanted to go back now. They had looked for their missing people for over a week now. They'd found all they were going to find. They were tired and the ship was damaged. It was time to go home. But Sisko knew it wasn't. It couldn't be, even if it wasn't Julian. And he knew his crew knew it too. Starfleet temporal policy was clear. They could not leave the missing crewmen there unless and until they knew there was no threat of changing the timeline. In other words, they would have to know that Julian was dead. There was no other way they could leave him, or any of their crew. And the changeling was an even bigger worry. If, by some unforeseen circumstance, they had to leave Bashir behind, Sisko could trust that Julian would do his best to leave the timeline intact. But the changeling could be actively attempting to change it. The easiest way he and the others, with Thomas's input, had decided was to influence the war going on below. Novels had been written about the concept. What if Hitler and the Nazis had won the war? They weren't cheerful books. What, what would the consequences be to the 20th, 24th century? Julian Bashir awoke, thankful for the darkness and the silence inside his cell, even thankful for the thinness of air. He could live with that, just as long as no one touched him. The changeling had kept her word about the doctor. One had come to see him hours before, and the stinging in his back was just now slowly ebbing away. Iodine. That was all the doctor had done, perhaps all he could do with the Germans watching his every move. The stars sewn on his striped uniform had not escaped Bashir's notice. He was a Jewish doctor and a prisoner himself. He could only do as he was told and no more. The doctor had entered silently, his face drawn and grave. He'd seemed tired and pained himself, and no doubt he was. Bashir had felt sorry for him, at least until he'd applied the, the iodine. All sympathy and feelings he had for others had melted away again as the antiseptic liquid seeped into the welts and cuts that crisscrossed his back. He had barely heard the laughter of the guards as he had faded once again to unconsciousness. But now, as he woke again, it was the pain that had faded, at least as long as he didn't move. He didn't ever want to move again. But just then the door opened and a figure stood in the doorway, his hands full of gray and blue striped fabric. As he stepped inside, Bashir was able to recognize the SS officer from his first few hours here. It had to be the changeling. Here are your clothes, he said, using a heavy German accent, perhaps to fool the guards. He tossed the fabric at Bashir. Someone will be here for you in thirty minutes. I suggest you be ready for him when he comes. He stepped back, and the door shut again. It took the full thirty minutes to get dressed. Every movement stirred up pain and threatened unconsciousness. But even if he'd been well, dressing in the dark would have been difficult. He had to fumble around to find the pants, the shirt, and there was more this time, something big and heavy made out of the same material as the pants. 
Bashir leaned his good shoulder against the wall and tried to figure it out. It had buttons, and when he finally held it right, he discovered it had sleeves as well. A coat. The changeling had given him a coat. This time, when the door opened, he was sitting up, propped against the wall and dressed. He felt warm, at least for now, and for that he could live with the material on his burning back. Besides, if he tucked his arm between the buttons of the coat, it could act as a makeshift sling. The changeling, again as the SS officer, stood in the door, but he wasn't alone. Another guard stood with him. The changeling said something to him in German. Bashir recognized Birkenau again, but he was still not sure what it meant. The guard did know, however, and he nodded briskly before stepping into the, st the cell. Stay out, he ordered. Bashir didn't understand, but he could guess. Using his legs and pushing against the wall, he slowly got to his feet. The wall started to spin and the changeling in the doorway to blur, but he managed to hold on to his consciousness despite the pain and rapid movement, at least until the guard spun him around forcefully by grabbing his left arm. It was overwhelming. The cell again went black and Julian's knees nearly buckled, but he remained on his feet and didn't faint, even as his arms were wrenched behind him and tied at the wrist. And then they were walking out of the cell, up the stairs, slowly, and out of the building into the biting wind and cold of winter. Bashir was glad for the coat, but it wasn't enough to protect against the icy wind. It was night again, or still, Bashir wasn't sure which. Going down the stairs, he had nearly fallen, but he got back to his feet and walked again in a daze. They went past the guards that stood at the gate, and past the long brick buildings and even the iron sign. Soon they were out in the open fields, and Bashir could see the stars above his head. Why can't you find me? He thought to the defiant up there somewhere, but he knew the answer. With no combat, he was just another human. Are you even looking any more? They walked on, the guard occasionally exhorting, exhorting Bashir to go faster, sometimes with only his voice, other times with a push from the butt of his gun. Bashir wasn't sure how long they'd walked, but as the sky turned from black to a dull gray, he began to see the outlines of the big camp with fence posts standing like candy canes. They kept walking, and the sky brightened with every few steps, little by little. Sunrise again, Bashir mused vaguely, and then he couldn't, could not remember why he would find that funny. The guard prodded him with his gun, and Bashir lurched over in pain. He wanted to turn around and yell at the man. Hurting him was well, only slowed him down. But he knew he didn't have the strength either, either to turn around or to yell. Every bit of energy was focused on into walking in front of the guard. For the second time since his arrival, he was amazed at the working of his legs. As they neared the large camp, he wondered how they'd managed to carry him this far. They passed under the large central watchtower Bashir remembered from when he'd been taken out. He couldn't think how long ago it was. It was hard enough to think of not falling down as his legs moved step by step forward with the prodding of the guard. He felt relieved to be returning. Anything was better than where he'd been. As he passed on the other side of the guard tower that stood above the gate, he glanced upward and was surprised to still see a few stars there. The wind was swift, and it kept the smoke at bay enough for a few pinpricks of light to shine through. 
As he watched, one of them shimmered and wavered and then disappeared altogether as if it had just gone under cloak. His heart leapt, and he forgot all about his legs which carried him with much greater ease now. He dared to hope that it was the defiant, cloaking so as not to be seen in the night sky. "'They'll come for me soon, you'll see,' he thought, as if to argue with the guard who even now was prodding him again. It was too much this time, and he fell forward, catching himself on his knees. His back had hurt enough without any help from the guard's gun. He tried to get to his feet again before the guard became impatient. "'I will not die here!' he screamed in his mind. "'I will not die here!' Behind him the guard cursed loudly and then grabbed the back of Bashir's collar, hauling him to his feet. His legs, faithful as ever, kept carrying him, though his thoughts were beginning to grow fuzzy again from the fire he felt on his back. The guard stopped him in front of one of the large wooden barracks. The guard stepped around him to open the door, and Bashir saw hundreds of oval faces turned to look at him. Was this my barracks? he wondered. He hoped it was. He felt his wrist behind him being untied. A blaze of pain shot through his arm as the guard, guard's hands brushed his own, and then his arms fell free to his sides. He started to take a step inside, hoping that his legs would not fail him after coming all this way. He wanted to get away from the guard, to lose himself again in the multitude of inmates at his, in his barracks and in this camp. Max looked up when the door opened. Everyone looked up. Bashir was standing in the doorway, just standing there. He had an odd look on his face, like he was not really there. There was a German guard behind him. He untied Bashir's hands and then shoved him forward. A small cry escaped from the Englishman as he fell forward, his right arm twisted up behind him. He tried to catch himself with his other arm before he hit the ground. As soon as his fingers touched the dirt, he cried out again and brought his hand up close to his chest, letting himself fall the rest of the way. He sat like that for several moments, his knees tucked up under him and his shoulders and face resting on the ground. He panted hard, obviously in pain, but didn't otherwise move. Some of the other prisoners began to taunt him, taunt him saying he, had cer he, he certainly was getting special treatment. Max was glad now that Bashir couldn't understand them. Vladia tapped his shoulder and then jumped down from the be bunk, beckoning for him to follow. They hurried over to Bashir and knelt down on either side of him. "'Let's get him up,' Max told the boy. He started to touch Bashir's shoulder, but Bashir recoiled in pain once more, biting back another cry. Max pulled his hands away. Something was wrong with the shoulder as well. Max nodded to Vladya and then tried again, this time very gently slipping his hands between Bashir's arm and his ribs. Vladya did the same on the other side, but both were surprised when Bashir took his hand and tried to sit up on his own. Vladya looked down at Bashir's hand. His fingers were red with blood. His fingers were gone. They managed to get him to his feet and walk him over to their bunk. He placed his good, better, hand on the bunk and started to step up, but stopped. The faraway look in his eyes was gone. In its place, Max saw exhaustion and pain. Max stood for a moment transfixed by those eyes and then sent Vladya up, the bunk, up, up to the bunk ahead of him. Then he and Vladya pushed and pulled as Bashir gave as much effort as he had. Bashir made it to the bunk and then collapsed, face down on the rough wood, his right arm lying along his side. His left arm was brought up close by his shoulder. He was breathing hard and unevenly, and his whole body shook with cold. 
In less than a minute, though, he was unconscious. Benjamin Sisko started to choke back the yawn he felt emerging from his throat and then decided it was a futile attempt. Stevens, the head engineer while the chief was off duty, didn't seem to take it the wrong way. Should work now, Stevens was saying. Sisko almost smiled and then thought better of it. It might not work at all. We're ready to try then? Yes, sir. Mr. Worf, Sisko ordered, prepare to engage cloaking device. Aye, sir, the Klingon acknowledged. There was a moment's pause as he keyed in the commands. Ready, Captain. Engage cloak. Sisko held his breath, as did the rest of the bridge crew. It was becoming a tradition. They'd all done the same thing when they waited to see if communications or the transporters were really going to work. Nothing happened, and Sisko was about to release the air in his lungs when the lights began to slowly dim. Mr. Stevens? It's working, sir, Stevens reported excitedly. We're cloaking! Finally, the light stabilized, basking the bridge in the familiar subdued lighting of the cloaked Defiant. Worf confirmed it. The cloak is functioning at 100%, Captain. Stevens' smile swelled with pride. Good work, Sisko nodded to him. What's next? Stevens' smile faded. He turned somberly and headed for the turbo lift. Sisko leaned back again in his chair and thought about Bashir. They had nearly circled the globe again after picking up Notsu and Fellini and still had no signal from Bashir. But now with a the cloak, they didn't have to constrain their search to the daylight side of the planet. A more systematic search plan could be utilized, leaving no area of the planet uncovered. A doubt remained, however. If Bashir's comm badge was disabled, they still wouldn't be able to find it. No room for doubts, Sisko told himself. He had to show confidence in his crew. Major, he said, and waited for her to join him at his chair. Work with the helm. Set a course that will cover every square inch of this planet in the least time, and if moving in closer will increase the sensor range, do it. Kira nodded, but didn't turn away immediately. Her eyes were troubled. Do you think he's still alive? She whispered. She lowered her eyes. All the others. Not all, Sisko reminded her, his voice low and gentle. And I have to believe he's still alive. We all do. Kira nodded and regained her full amount of composure. She and Dax moved away to the table in the rear of the bridge to discuss the new course. Max watched Bashir carefully, thinking it ironic that he was playing doctor while the doctor was being a patient. Vladja had proven himself to be quite innovative. He'd managed to find a somewhat clean shirt to use for bandages. Max didn't bother to ask where he'd gotten it. Vladja had washed it as well as possible by finding a pile of snow unmarred as of yet by muddy feet and general grime. Then he'd laid it out across his legs as he sat on the ground outside, moving around to take advantage of the few rays of sunlight that filtered in through the smoke that filled the camp. It had taken all day, but the shirt was nearly dry, though it was still cold and stiff from the frigid air. To be honest, Max had thoroughly expected Bashir to die before the next roll call, but the Englishman had stubbornly held on to life. He'd only been half-conscious when Max and Vladia had left him to go out for drills. The SS were staying away due to a typhus epidemic, and Bashir could stay in the barracks with the other sick and dying prisoners. Amazingly, he regained consciousness somewhat around noon, 
somewhere around noon, and with help he even sat up, leaning sideways with his right shoulder against the barracks wall. He hadn't said a word or asked for anything. Max wasn't sure if it was from shock or the realization of the futility of speaking when no one understood his language. Still, it was disconcerting. The doctor's back, once they'd managed to remove his coat was blood and bloodstained shirt, was riddled with an ugly pattern of red and bleeding welts and cuts. Max tore the front of the extra shirt into strips that he could be used for bandages and then draped the rest of it across Bashir's back. Bashir had winced a little at the pain, but still kept quiet. Bashir regained his authority as the doctor when it came to his left hand. Using his other hand, he had directed Max in the most effective way to support his shoulder and bandaged his own bent and broken hand. Shortly after, he'd fallen asleep again, still sitting against the wall. He had only awoken when Vladian brought him some of the black bread and sausage to eat. Bashir ate it hungrily, and Max realized that he probably hadn't eaten since they had taken him away. Evening came, and with it another roll call. It took a long time and a lot of help from Vladya for Bashir to stand again. Even the sick had to go to roll call. The block El Testa yelled at them for being slow, but luckily did not threaten them physically. The three of them were the last to leave the courtyard, but they were not far behind the others. The wind was strong, but the smoke was heavy and was replaced almost as quickly as it was blown away. The walk to the Alpelplatz was difficult, but Bashir kept up. Vladya held on to his good arm to steady him. When they lined up, Max pushed to find a place for them in the center of the row. He did not want to be on the outside. Bashir's condition would certainly draw attention, and after a week in this hell, Max had learned that that was one thing you never wanted to do here. Max also realized that with Bashir, being inconspicuous was nearly impossible. Even buried in the middle of three hundred men, his height made him stand out, and his full head of hair finished the job. Though Max himself had resented the shaving of his own hair, he now appreciated the uniformity it provided. Every few minutes, Max would dart his eyes toward Bashir, not daring to turn his head. The doctor stayed, stared silently at the feet of the man in front of him, his head bowed. His shoulders swayed slightly with the wind, but he remained on his feet. For Julian, the roll call was an exercise of contradictions. He felt nothing, and he felt pain. He was cold, and he felt he would burn up. He was tired, but he could not close his eyes. He stood, and yet he could not feel the ground beneath his feet. He longed to go back inside, and yet wished never to move again. His coat felt the brush of the wind that shook the body that was oblivious to it. The world was a dream with no reality at all. As if they were sounding in his own mind, he heard the SS counting. He knew what they were saying, understood their numbers, though he knew he didn't speak German. Fifty, fifty-five, they were saying. Sixty, they kept counting. One hundred, one hundred and five. On and on they counted until the numbers again became incomprehensible to him. Unsatisfied with their numbers, they started again. Five, ten, fifteen. Three rows up and to the right, a man dropped to his knees and then fell to the ground. The SS officer who'd been counting this particular section of the prisoners stopped his counting and swiftly came over to the man his club raised. Bashir watched it as if it was a dream, half pitying the man and half unable to believe that it was really happening. The SS beat him slowly as if moving in slow motion. The man cried out and it echoed in Julian's ears. Then his cries stopped. 
He stopped moving. The SS, sweating from the effort of the beating, drew away and resumed his dispassionate counting right where he'd left off. Seventy-five. Eighty. A small gallows was erected in the Appel plots. Bashir hadn't remembered seeing it before. One of the Germans, an SS who obviously commanded the respect of all the other guards, addressed the gathering. His voice boomed with anger and loathing. Bashir didn't understand what was being said, and Max could not even attempt to explain it during the roll call, not even to Vladya, who would have understood a Czech translation. But after a few minutes of the Germans ranting, Bashir saw that a translation was unnecessary. He still did not know the details as the three men were marched out toward the gallows. They could barely stand. All three of them were bruised and battered and bleeding. Bashir thought it was a wonder that they could even walk. Then he vaguely wondered if he looked as bad as they did. They'd apparently been punished severely, perhaps even tortured like himself. And now they were going to hang. Then there was a sound, an odd sound, at a time where there was only supposed to be counting. Short, uneven taps sounded through the forest of prisoners. Bashir didn't dare turn his head to see what it was. It would undoubtedly come into focus given enough time. Besides, he wasn't entirely sure that he cared what the sound was. The sound drew closer until a procession emerged between the two groups of prisoners. At the head was a man, barely able to stand himself. He wore a sign with German writing and carried a drum, which he tapped raggedly as the German guards behind him prodded him forward. He was wearing street clothes, not the dull stripes of the prisoners. But Bashir could see by his shaved head and gaunt face that he had belonged to Auschwitz. He had escaped. Only now he'd been caught. The respected SS was once again speaking, yelling so that all could hear him. The... Th the three were lined up in front of the gallows on what looked like a bench. The nooses were around their necks. Only one remained empty. They looked at the drummer with the eyes dulled by pain. He looked back at them and dropped his shoulders a little closer to the ground. They were friends. The bench was removed and the three dropped. It was only a few inches, so their necks didn't break. They dangled there, jerking and writhing as they slowly strangled to death from their own weight. It began to snow. Bashir watched it all from afar, as if it were only a dream. Yet somewhere in his mind he knew that these were real men with real lives now ended. He closed his eyes against the wind and the snow and against the sight of the bodies twitching there. When he opened them again, the three were still, but the drummer was being put on the bench. The noose was tightened around his neck. The bench was removed, and he joined the three in death. Well, at first I slowed it down so much that my reading was rather wooden, so I had to start over and try to find a middle ground. I hope it was better this time. And again, please pardon my really terrible German accents. While I did try hard to keep the timing of the events close to history, I can't say for sure about this hanging. I can't remember for sure, honestly. But escaped prisoners were sent to the gallows tapping that drum and wearing such a sign. It was a warning to all the other prisoners not to try escaping. The typhus scare, I remember, did happen around this time. On a more positive note, the name of Notsu has a funny story to it. 
Sometimes when you go to see a movie in the theater, you sit through some advertisements or announcements and even some entertaining bits before the previews play. One time, there was a segment called Screen Scramblers. A name was scrambled to be Jellicana Notsu. Can you guess what the unscrambled name was? I'll give you a moment to write it down. Jellicana Notsu. I'll give you a hint. N-O-H-T-S-U is Notsu. I like the idea of the scrambled name for an alien, so I used it here. Even when writing a very hard and unpleasant story, you can still use fun little things like that. Have you guessed it yet? It's Angelica Houston. Well, it's late, so I should sign off. If you'd like to read ahead, remember you can always go to my site, gabrielle.sites.net. Remember, S-Y-T-E-S. Oh, and add slash trek on it, so it's gabrielle.sites.net slash trek. Or you can go to fanfiction.net or archive of our own. And if you'd like to leave me a comment or question, you can tweet me at at inhildi, that's I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I, or email me at inhildi at gmail.com. See you again soon.